Welcome back to Meathead Hippie Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Schramm, personal trainer, nutritional therapy practitioner, serial entrepreneur. I like to stay busy, but podcasting is one of my favorite things to do. I went completely online. So I started off in person doing one-on-ones, started doing some online challenges and continued to do one-on-ones and then really had this vision of going completely online. And it sounded so fabulous that I would be a completely online trainer and then I realized, oh my God, I miss people. So I started this podcast, Meathead Hippie. I am the ultimate meathead hippie because I really, really love bicep curls and getting jacked. But I also love to talk about the weirdest things, <laughs> which if you followed me for a while, you know. So we're going to talk about a little bit of all of it today because I have an incredible guest, James Clear. We will talk to James about how I found him. It is the quote, I mean, I'm getting this tattooed. Like this is my favorite thing in the world to talk about. I don't even want to spoil it, but it is so powerful when you learn about habits. And he just released a book, Atomic Habits. I, it, mine is on my way and I can't wait to read it. The reviews are already incredible. This guy is a world-renowned speaker on habits and not overthinking it and making changes in your life. And this could be with business, with fitness. He's my favorite newsletter that I'm on because he, and he talks about it, about creating content and building his, building his brand. And although it is relevant for people that are just starting off, it is also very relevant for people that are so light years ahead and doing all the things and starting a business and growing their business. We can never learn enough about the basics of habits and humanity and how we are in our day-to-day operations and how important each step is. And this was such a huge piece of my Don't Overthink It program, this mindset program that I just ran. I will do another one if you're interested in a little bit more one-on-one training with me that I don't do a ton of, but with this program, it is a must. Please just shoot us an email and as always, all of our programs, the MFIT challenges that help people cut sugar and learn how to be fat adapted, the version one, version two MFIT challenges, 21 days, $21, and also the strength programs can all be found on emilyshram.com. And I truly think this is the missing piece. Go buy his book. Um, tell me what you think of him. Go follow him, James Clear. He is just fantastic. And I just died when he told me his spirit animal. It was just so perfect. He's just so great. So I've been holding this podcast until the book was released. And now I can finally release it. And now you guys are going to love it. It's one of my favorites. We have so many good guests. I don't know if you just listened or if you have listened or what's coming. We have somebody that's um, broken the world record of traveling across Antarctica. We have just powerful people. And I just wanted to end 2018 in a very inspiring way. I just love my job. And seriously, enjoy. I'm going to stop talking. Time for James Clear. See you guys soon. <laughs> I'm Emily Schramm, the ultimate meathead hippie. Welcome to the show. James Clear, I jumped at the opportunity to get you on Meathead Hippie because I have asked you in the past and you were busy writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> you said after this book is written, then yes. And so now this book has been written. It is about ready to go live. And I am just so glad that I got to snag you to be a guest on this because you're one of my favorite emails to open up, um, favorite newsletters. I just love what you do. So welcome. 
Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, I'm excited to talk and uh, thank you for being patient too. So the book <laughs> is done and here we are. Does it feel so good that the book is done? Oh yeah, it feels great. Um, I I kind of have this brain where I'm good at things that are like daily or weekly, like you know, writing an article every week or going to the gym a couple days a week. Like that's kind of in my wheelhouse. And anything more than I don't know two weeks seems like a really big project to me. And this was like, here's a book deal. Spend the next two years writing this, and that's just like way too big for me to be able to handle well. So. I, I struggle with long-term projects, and um, this is definitely the biggest and longest-term project that I've worked on. It took me three years of writing and research to finish the book, and so uh, yeah, it feels it feels good to be done. It feels good to uh, I don't know to beat your demons in a certain sense, and uh, and most of all, though, I'm just I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the book that we finished, and. Um, I feel uh, I feel like I have something good to share with the world. So. Oh, of course you do. This is so great. And it's so good. It's refreshing to hear you say this because you have mastered, just like you said, the daily tasks, which is what we're going to talk about, habits, motivation, um, all of the things that I think so many of us, when we're starting something, have a hard time implementing. So I am very curious because I also am very similar. If it's too daunting, I just get like paralysis. I like get mm. so claustrophobic and ah, like I, I just avoid starting. Um, do you have any advice? To, we're just going to jump right into this. Do you have any advice to help with not the daily habits, which you have clearly mastered with atomic habits in the book, but um, with this kind of the opposite, the long-term big projects? Because I also well, think- my challenge is that I get into this perfectionism loop where if I have a lot of time to work on something that I think, okay, you know, I'm going to spend two years on this. It has to be really great. You know, like before I just had a quality bar and I wanted to do it well, but now if I'm going to spend this much time and invest this much energy then I have to do it, um, you know, perfectly or as well as I could. And of course that's impossible to do. Um, and one of the challenges writing the book was it just kept expanding in scope. So I started uh, and it was going to be a book about habits and then it was going to become a book about human behavior. And then it was going to be, it just like kept getting wider and wider yeah. and eventually, and this is part of the the job that my editors did, which I, I think they really helped a lot. Um, you know, I had to come back to what was important and focus on the fundamentals. And I think that is probably true in a broader sense for any big project. Uh, when you're feeling paralyzed, you likely need to come back to the fundamentals and focus on taking the first step again. And that sounds uh, simple, but it's hard to remember in the moment when you're feeling overwhelmed and when you're feeling like there's a lot to be done or you want to accomplish uh, this big task, it's very easy to get overwhelmed by the size and scope of the project. So, you know, in a way, we could say that building my website was a really big project because that took a couple years as well. Um, but I never looked at it that way. I was able to look at it in a different frame and that helped a lot. So rather than thinking about I want to build a website that gets millions of visitors. I focused on how can I write the best article every Monday and Thursday. And so by chunking it down uh, and just focusing on the fundamentals of writing one good article, I ended up getting to that result, but I never made it about that result. And so I think there's something there too about shifting your frame of reference and making it more about the process and whatever the next step is that you can control and less about the ultimate outcome. Um, because it's really easy to, Outcomes only happen like once on the timeline, you know, like they're very, and they can be very distant milestones. So yeah. if that's all you think about, it just feels like you're delaying gratification all the time. And that's not very fun. Mm -hmm. But if you're focused on the next step and enjoying the process um, and doing the process to the best of your ability, then you kind of get to enjoy that moment while also moving uh, in the right direction. 
I love that for for your book. Um, what did you feel like your fundamentals were like overall? So you have this big, because I think this is also for so many people uh, that are getting into their own industry, whether they're doing it as a career or if they are just trying to like like you just said, build the website. Um, you see something, you're like, oh, I want to add that. I want to add that. I want to add that. And then it just turns. I love that because it's so my issue. What were the fundamentals for you with that book? Like, what did you just keep coming back to? Well, there were two things that really helped me in the writing of the book so, and also were a challenge. So my first challenge was I've been writing about habits and improvement for years now. And so I had, when I started the book, I felt like I had 30 or 40 ideas that all kind of fell under the umbrella of better habits. But what I didn't understand, I didn't know this when I started out, but what I didn't understand at the time was I was unsure about how they all connected. So when you run a website or a blog, you can write one article and you can link to two or three other ones. And so it becomes kind of like a spider web. But a book is not like a spider web. A book is like a number line. It goes chapter one, two, three, four. And so you have to like take all these little points out of the web and lay them down in a row. And uh, it took me a while to figure out how to organize those concepts. So that was a challenge for me. But once I did that, then I was able to return to some of these fundamentals uh, that you're mentioning. And so a few of the fundamentals that I, um, that I cover in the book, really they're like four kind of major levers, I guess I would call them, or four laws of behavior change that people can use to build good habits and break bad ones. And uh, so moving the spider web into the number line got me those four big laws. And then once I had those, I was able to just kind of dive into each one and utilize some of the concepts and applications that I had talked about and written about previously. Um, so the first law, for example, is make it obvious. And building a good habit is often about what our environment uh, presents to us and is obvious to us. So what are the things that are on your kitchen counter at home or your desk at work or um, in, uh, in the common room in the office? Like these are all obvious cues that can either nudge us in the, a positive direction or a negative direction. Hmm. And um, so anyway, so once I, once I had those fundamental laws, then I could talk about how to apply them. I like that because there's so many subliminal messages in our life and our, it's, I mean, that's marketing and advertising, right? Mm. So if we switch that conversation and bring it into our kitchen home or bring it into our, you know, bathroom, it's, it's, we're so aware of everything, even though we're not really aware. I think that's great. Well, that's cool. Um, can I tell you about how I found you? Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> so do you remember your article about Zen and the art of archery? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> yep. So this uh, was sent to me and it is still my, I, I think I'm going to get this tattooed, not the quote, but some sort of um, bow and arrow, but everything is aiming. It's mm. just, I read that article. It's been saved forever. I just, I'm obsessed with it. And I would love, uh, I guess, kind of going back even further. Did you always write? Is this something that you personally found in your own journey because it was something that you had a hard time with, with habits and clarity, or is this the type of person you are? I, I'm very Yeah. Uh, if you were to talk to any of my teachers or professors from high school or college, none of them would have said, oh, he's such a great writer. They're like, <laughs> I was like average at best. Um, they're, I kind of like became a writer by doing it every week. I never set out to do it. What I set out to do was to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to have my own business and be able to work on projects that excited me and interested me. But I didn't start out being like, oh, I want to be an author. Um, it just happened that uh, I tried a couple. So I've been an entrepreneur for about eight years now. The last six years have been at jamesclear.com and writing about habits and improvement. 
But the two years before that, the very first two years, I tried a bunch of different business ideas, most of which flopped. And I realized that the reason things weren't going well and nobody was buying anything is because I didn't know how to get the word out. I didn't know how to market stuff. And so I started writing just to uh, build an email list and to be able to reach people for my work, uh, for the business that I was trying to build. And as I started doing that, one of the good pieces of advice that I got early on was try things until something comes easily. And so I kept trying different things. And then suddenly it was coming easier because I was able to build an email list. And for whatever reason, uh, I seemed to be better at doing that than some of the other marketing ideas that I had tried. Hmm. And, uh, and then I, I had this Word document of like 60 pages or so of my thoughts on habits. And it was just a personal document about like what I was doing and why I was building certain habits and how I was going about it. And eventually I was like, all right, this is like 60 pages long. I should publish like something out of this. So I just grabbed one article and that was the first post I put up on jamesclear.com, November 12th, 2012. And uh, ever since then, I just did an article every Monday and Thursday. And that, that was the true thing that came easy, easier than other stuff. Like as soon as I started writing about that, growth took off faster than anything else that I worked on. So I was like, well, Maybe I should focus on this. <laughs> it came easy. I do like that advice because um, it, it, it means it's flowing from you, right? It's not something that we think we should do. And then, and then it becomes more authentic just in its execution. I, you have to work just as hard. It's just yeah. that uh, the results come faster. You know, like you're going to be, I feel like this is true for a lot of uh, many different industries, but pe- there are all kinds of people who are working hard every day. Um, but where you choose to apply the effort determines a lot about how far you go. Um, so if you're gonna, if you're the type of person that's gonna show up and put energy and effort into something, it also makes sense to um, be sure that you're getting as much leverage out of that as possible. And uh, this was just an example of, I worked hard on a lot of things that didn't go that well, and then I switched to something that, uh, that moved much quicker. I love that. With Monday and Thursday, was that uh, one of those things that you had to create the habit and then it became easy, or was it just, it just felt good right away. I think this applies. I mean, I, I kind of like, I love weightlifting, so I kind of bring everything back to fitness at some point, but I feel like all of the lessons I learned in the gym apply to other areas of my life as well. Um, and this is one example of that where, um, I, you know, I can't predict which days I'm going to go in the gym and set a PR. And if you tried to train like that and only go on the days when you felt good, it would never work because you wouldn't be there consistently enough to actually get great results. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, and writing for me was the same way. I had to show up every Monday and Thursday. I couldn't predict which days I was going to have a good idea or produce like a compelling article, but I knew that if I showed up and wrote two great articles a week or tried my best twice a week, then by the time I got to the end of the month, I would have one or two that were really good. Um, and so it was only by developing that consistency and letting the frequency drive it. Uh, rather than the quality. Like I think in any endeavor you have, you have choices. You can either choose to optimize for quality, in which case you say, doesn't matter when this gets out, we're just going to make sure it's the absolute best thing we can make. You could optimize for uh, frequency or for schedule and say, it doesn't matter how good or how bad this is, something is getting out on Monday. Um, and you could optimize for scope. And you could say, it doesn't matter how quickly we do it or how good it is, but it has to be this big or this extensive. Um, and for me, I chose to optimize based on frequency, especially early on. That was the one that like, as long as I wrote an article every couple of days, I was developing my taste. I was developing my voice. Um, and that was what eventually led to better results too. 
And that's good. You had to let go of that perfectionism, right? So that was that a hard transition just because you're just like, you know, I'm it sure. was the way that I learned to get around it was by saying, um, something has to get out on Monday and Thursday. So if, and I also have this kind of internal quality bar, this internal perfectionism thing, right? Where yeah. I want it to be good enough. So I had to say, well, if I can only write one good paragraph today, then that's what's getting out. It has to get out today. And I feel like it needs to be of a certain quality. So I have to reduce the scope. Yeah. Um, so that was the one that, you know, that I like, uh, accommodated on. And the I other like two, that. um, I start with. I love that. And I am curious, and it's, we just, I just have a ton of um, aspiring and new budding entrepreneurs as well. Uh, I think I would love to know any word of advice for those two years that you had where you were like, mm. Ugh. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it was like, this is not what I wanted. It's, it's just not it. It's just not it. It's just not it. Um, do you have any like words of advice as people are navigating those two years outside of just find what feels easy? I, well, I, so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, so it took me about 18 months before I was making enough money to like pay my bills where I was like, where I would say I was full time and because I had saved some money up so that I could just focus on the business, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't at break even until about 18 months. And looking back, I think that's actually kind of fast. It felt incredibly slow <laughs> at the time. Um, and so for anybody going through that and feeling that right now, um, yeah, I, I guess I would say it's like two years. I look back on those first two years now and refer to it as the period where I incubated my skill set. Mm, um, I like but that. <laughs> I needed I needed to learn that stuff. I didn't know anything in the beginning. No, you know, like when you start, you have to start at the beginning. That's just how it goes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had to learn how to build a website and create an email list, and um, you know, I had to learn what all that stuff was. I didn't even know what like how do you even build a website? I, now it's even easier than it was then. But like that, there's just like a lot of questions and whether it's, whether it's technical stuff or think, uh, things specific to your business and the supply chain or whatever you're trying to, uh, service or create, there's going to be a bunch of just fundamentals like that, that now are implicit knowledge for me. And so I, I don't have to think about them or worry about them that much. That's the other thing that's really hard about starting a business is that there's all this work in the first year or two that you don't have, it's like a one-time cost. There are all these upfront costs that have to be paid early on, uh, both in knowledge and in time and money. And uh, once those are paid, then you have suddenly more space to actually do the work and get paid for it. Um, but before those are paid, you don't have a business. So it's, um, that part is frustrating. It's almost like you need to work twice as hard in the beginning um, because you have all these new things that you haven't learned yet. Um, yeah. No, that's so, so true. And then it, and it, like you said, it moves so slow, but it's kind of like the article that I found you in Zen in the art of archery, right? The whole ability to just perfect the routine before you even release the arrow. And that's mm. why I'm, can you, can you, I'm going to butcher the story because. Yeah, we should it. tell the story. We should tell okay, the story. So, yes. uh, so the story is that, and, um, I believe the Japanese archer's name is Awa Kenzo. So he's this like famous archery master in Japan. And uh, there's this guy, Yugen Herigl, who went over there. He was a professor at a university. And while he's a visiting professor, I think he was originally from Germany, he decides, I want to get exposed to Japanese culture and life. And so he starts taking archery lessons. And uh, he just happens to go to this archery um, uh, master Alkenzo to take lessons from him and for the first like seven years uh, that he's over there this guy has him shoot into a bale of hay that's like six feet away 
Um, and he was like, you have to be kidding me at how like boring and uh, basic and fundamental this is. And so one day, uh, he finally gets to step back a little bit further and his arrows are flying all the way, like all across course and they're, uh, you know, he's not hitting the target. So he's getting really frustrated. And, uh, he looks at the master and says, the problem is my aim. And his master says, um, <laughs> something to the effect of if you're an expert, it's not about, uh, it's not about where you aim. Like you, it's more about like how you approach the shot. And he was like all, you know, annoyed at him. And he was like, well, if that's the case and you should be able to hit it with your eyes closed. And so the guy looks at him and he's like, meet me in the archery courtyard tonight. And so the sun goes down, it's dark outside, all the lights are off. And uh, they walk over to the practice range and the master picks up a bow and arrow and steps up and goes through his normal shooting routine taking the right steps, breathing appropriately, drawing the bow back, and then he fires an arrow out into the dark. And uh, later, the professor said that he couldn't see it, but he knew that it had hit the target because he could hear it thump in. Then right, as soon as he fires the first arrow, he pulls out another one, goes through the same shooting routine, fires it off into the night. And uh, then the professor gets up and runs across the courtyard, flips on the light over the um, target. And not only had the first arrow struck into the black of the, the center of the target, but the second arrow had actually gone in and splintered part of the first. And um, it's such a beautiful story, not just because it's awesome, but also <laughs> because uh, the point is that where the arrow lands is actually out of your control once it's released. So the only thing that matters is everything that precedes the shot, not the shot itself. And uh, these archery masters have this philosophy where they say everything is aiming. It's not just about what you look at. It's not just about looking at the target. It's about how you breathe, how you pull back the bow, how you set your feet, um, and how, everything that is associated with how you approach the shot. And I think that that, of course, has applications to many areas of life, that we are so focused on looking at the center of the target that we don't think about everything else that's preceding the shot, about where our feet are and how we're breathing and how we're holding the bow. Um, and that if we instead released our need to look at the target so much and stop focusing on the results all the time and focused uh, on the process and the approach that precedes it, oftentimes we would find that the arrow flies straight anyway. Oh, it's so good. It's my favorite. And then that's when I felt <laughs> that it was like, yep, James Clear, we're getting you on this podcast. <laughs> that was a long time ago. It was before even Meathead Hippie was Meathead Hippie, but I just, I can't wait. And this is the coolest story. Um, it's just, I was just in San Francisco and with my sisters, I had this little sister weekend and I have two older sisters, really tangent. I'll be quick, but my oldest sister that we were at this coffee shop and there's this bookshelf where if it has a yellow sticker, then it, you can take it. And so she went and got this book and I was like, Oh, that's so fun. You can get a free book. She's like, I was like, go pick me out one. And I was finishing up emails and then we were going to go out to eat. And she comes up and this is literally not even a week ago. She hands it to me and she says, here you go. And I look at it and it's Zen in the art of archery. And I was like, Oh, wow. That's crazy. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? So I told her the whole story about the um, blog post that someone had sent me that was yours. And then me getting it, I ended up getting it on Amazon after that 
blog post, but this was like a vintage book. And I just yeah. like, this is so ridiculous. So I just was like really um, excited even more to interview you because of that full circle that happened. Um, with, with question that came up when we were, you were telling the story, I always think, I love this quote of like, the grass is greener where you water it. And how many times I see more and more, just especially with social media, as great of the tools it can be, just how it can so easily push us. Like we can't focus on anything because we see something else, like this constant comparison method, but also Mm -hmm. this constant. So I would love to talk about kind of the opposite of have, well, maybe it is the same as habits, but like when you are trying to find your own lane or find, you know, water your own lawn, how do you, what tools do you use to make sure that we're not just constantly looking and second guessing ourselves in the choice? Once we do decide, how do we avoid that? Yeah, we, we kind of live in this interesting time where we face uh, an interesting challenge, which is that the things that stand out on social media are the things that get spread because they're rare and interesting and uh, they stand out. And in a world of 7 billion people, you're going to be able to find at least a few thousand who are better than you in any vertical of life. And because they are so good, those few thousand people get shared more than others because they're interesting and rare. Um, but you're not just following them on social media. You're, you're also following and being exposed to the other few thousand people who are great in this other vertical that are next to them and then the vertical next to them. And so pretty soon your feed is just filled with what looks, what feels like normal everyday life because you're seeing it every day, but it's actually like the rarest of the rare among the 7 billion. And it's very easy to feel like, uh, people's daily lives are sexier or um, more impressive or wealthier than your life is. Um, This is particularly difficult on social media because almost always, and this is true for the regular news cycle as well, uh, the event is the thing that gets shared and not the process behind the event. So to bring it back to the story we just told, the arrow hitting the bullseye is what gets, that's the news story. Mm -hmm. The um, breathing and the feet and the setup is not, it's not interesting. Um, You know, like you hear about when the Broadway show becomes a hit, nobody is talking about the um, musician or creator writing the show for two years beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, So that challenge, that separation between process and outcome is I think difficult. Like the overnight success, right? So the people I always right. hear stories of, and same for you. I'm you're gonna get this. This book is like gonna just take off, and I know you already have an incredible audience. But even with the, your book, they're gonna read it and be like, "Where James Clear come from?" You're like, "Guys, mm. I've been doing this for six. Mm. You know, you've been doing it for so long." So yeah. I I do appreciate that perspective. Um, there's um there's a an analogy that I use in the book, and I'll come back to your original question in a second um, about heating up an ice cube. So if you have an ice cube on a table, you walk into a room, it's cold, you can see your breath, say it's like 25 degrees, and then you heat up the room to 26 degrees, and then 27, 28, 29, still nothing's happened, ice cube's still on the table, 30, 31, and then you go from 31 to 32 degrees, and suddenly there's this phase transition, the ice starts to melt, and it's a one degree change, seemingly no different than all the changes that came before it, but suddenly um, everything is different. 
And I think a lot of the time progress in life is like that, where you're kind of stuck on what I would call the plateau of latent potential. You're making these changes and it can feel very frustrating to do that, to put all this work in. Um, but complaining about not getting results because you worked hard for a few months is kind of like complaining that an ice cube hasn't melted when you've heated it from 25 to 31 degrees. Like the work isn't wasted, it's just being stored. Um, and so, so often we are not patient enough with ourselves. Um, and because we are inundated on social media and the news cycle with all of these results, we feel like, why hasn't this ice cube melted yet? You know, like I've been running for a month. Why can't I see changes in my body? Um, and as soon as you get locked into that type of results oriented mindset, mindset, it becomes very easy to let good habits kind of fade away mm -hmm. and try to chase whatever the next quicker, faster, get rich quick, lose weight fast scheme is um, rather than committing to the, the habits and results or uh, sorry, the habits in the process That's over the results. Perfect analogy. I really love that. Um, okay. So your original question was about, uh, ignoring the kind of tide of social media and everything that's like pulling us toward the noise. Yeah. The noise of everybody else's stuff. Keep your, when I was in, uh, when I was in grade school, our teachers used to tell us, keep your eyes on your own paper. And I, I feel like that still applies as an adult, you know, like it's so easy to spend all your time looking at other people's fees and other people's papers rather than thinking about your own um, process. But uh, so there's a story that I really like about this general philosophy. Um, there's a woman named Martha Graham in like the probably mid 1900s. She was a choreographer. She did the choreography for um, Oklahoma, the famous Broadway play in like the 40s and 50s. And uh, Oklahoma was her first big success. It like really blew up. And she was, of course, happy that it did well, but also kind of annoyed because she had been working for like two decades before that. And she thought that some of the other plays and choreography she had done were better than Oklahoma was and it, they didn't like catch anybody's eye. And so she's talking to a friend about this and she was like, you know, I, I worked so hard on these other things and they didn't do anything. And then this one, which I thought was okay, blew up. So I kind of feel like I'm not made for this work anymore. I kind of feel like I'm like my, uh, I'm uncalibrated. I can't just, I can't figure out what is good and what is bad. Huh. And so, uh, anyway, her friend looked at her and said, you have something inside of you that is unique, that can only be shared with the world if you share it. If you choose not to share what you have, whatever your creation is, whatever you're going to uh, put out into the world, it will, not be, it will not be created by anybody else. Your unique perspective, your unique time that you have, this little narrow window of history that you happen to be here. Um, and so you can, if you want, you know, choose to stop and switch to something new. But in many ways, it is not your responsibility to judge or determine whether your work is good or bad or whether it should be successful or unsuccessful. Your only job is to do the work. Um, and there's another famous quote about art, creating art like that, where it's like, make good art, put it out into the world while everybody else is deciding whether it's good or bad, make more art. Um, I love it. And that's, that's kind of the point, you know, like we get so worried about what other people are doing or what, how they're grading our paper, uh, that we paralyze ourselves and prevent us from just doing the next set of work. Um, we're focused on judging it, but it's not your job to judge it. It's your job to do it. You had a great newsletter of people that create art. Uh, I think it was like seven, seven people. Yeah. Seven different quotes from the same concept. It was just like, <laughs> you just keep doing it. Just don't stop. Um, 
I, I love it. That's great. I think with me, I, um, in my audience and the people that are out here, this is like, so who are listening, it's just so good because it's refreshing to know that we're not crazy and in our own head. I think we always feel like we're on an Island in these thoughts and in these comparison methods and the, the battle with ourselves of like, why, why am I doing this? What, what is, what is this purpose? I think we mm. tend to think that we're alone in that. And I think all of us do have those, even I'm sure when you were writing the book, there is moments of that. So I think making sure it's humanized that doubting is such a part of the, of the journey. Yeah. Uh, everybody faces doubt and uncertainty. You know, it's just like, th this is one of the funny things about, I wasn't expecting this when I started writing about habits. Um, but when you write about habits and creativity and productivity and performance, uh, you know, every week I'm, I'm trying to find new stories and new examples, but a lot of them are similar fundamentals and principles. Um, and so I'm writing about these and sharing them each week and each month. And so, so many times I get emails from people who say, I feel like you wrote this article just for me, which is particularly hilarious when you get like 20 people who all say that. They're like, okay, clearly I couldn't have written it for just for all 20 of you. And what I take away from that being on the back end is everybody is dealing with the same problems. We feel like our problems are unique because we assign them to our specific like home or work or the specific name of the person that's in our life versus somebody else's life. But at their core, all the problems are very similar. Um, and I, in a way, I find that inspiring, you know, kind of like unites us. We have this shared humanity um, and uh, these shared burdens that we all deal with from time to time. And knowing that other people are going through that same process of doubt and uncertainty and um, questioning whether their work is good enough or should be shared doesn't necessarily make it easy to deal with it when you're uh, when you have to uh, face that. But at least you know that you're not alone. Yeah, I are you ready for my questions? These are going to get good. I have um, all right. Let's do it. <laughs> so this is through my private Facebook group that. We, I mentioned that you were coming on and so many good questions. I will try to tap into a few of them. This one I like a lot because I think it's a little bit opposite. So this is from Kelly. She says, I tend to start a new habit that is good for me, walking, running every day. I stick to it for a long time, almost too long, and then I'll start getting sick of it because my life seems too routine. How do you break those molds of becoming too much of a hamster in a cage? Mm. Yeah, so this is a great question. So this is something that I cover um, in the second half of the book in a chapter called The Goldilocks Rule. And the, 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 one of the main challenges is in the beginning, a habit is new, uh, but it's kind of difficult because you haven't formed it yet. And so you need to focus on building this new routine. Uh, and as long as you choose something that is small enough and not overly intimidating or hard to stick with week in and week out, um, it's actually, it can be a little bit fun because it's something that's new, but it's not pushing you so hard that it's impossible to do. So like, say for example, that, uh, her example of going for a walk or something every day, that's great. Uh, if you wanted to do say a hundred pushups a day, you might be able to do it for a week or two. Um, but it, as soon it's going to start getting like, it, it impinges on the rest of your life. It's going to require a big lifestyle change. So anyway, you start, you start small and you're able to stick with it. But then at some point, a habit, once it's repeated enough, becomes automatic. And when it becomes automatic, it no longer is interesting. Um, it's, we start to fall into this loop of like boredom. And for whatever reason, the human brain uh, seems to be wired to seek novelty to some degree. And uh, there's a famous quote by um, 
uh, Machiavelli, where he says, you know, people desire novelty so much that those who are doing well want it as much as those who are doing poorly. And so even when things are going well for us, we still were like, well, maybe I should try something new because I'm kind of bored. Um, so there are two things that I mentioned in the chapter. Uh, the first one is a way to prevent boredom. And that is by adhering to what's called the Goldilocks rule. So the Goldilocks rule essentially states that humans experience peak levels of motivation when they work on a task that is just beyond their current ability. Not too hard, not too easy, just right. Um, and so, for example, imagine you're playing tennis. If you're playing a tennis match and you're playing against like a pro, like Serena Williams or something, then you might, it might be cool for a minute uh, because you're getting to play Serena, but if, if you're really trying, it's going to be frustrating pretty soon. You're going to lose every point. Uh, similarly, if you're playing against like a four-year-old, again, it might be cute for a second, but if you're actually trying to play, it's going to get boring because you're going to win every point. But imagine that you play someone who's like just on your level of ability. Uh, you win a few points, you lose a few, you have a chance to win the match, but only if you really try. And that's kind of in that Goldilocks zone where it's like, okay, now I feel really motivated. I'm fully engaged. And uh, sometimes we'll call this flow or being in the zone. Scientists have actually tried to map this level of motivation and they find that it happens when you're about four or 5% beyond your current ability. So you're taking on a challenge that is just on the edge of what you can do. Um, now in daily life, it's rarely possible to figure out how to be 4% beyond what you're, what you're capable of. But I think as a general rule, this principle of let me try to take on something that's just a little bit of a challenge. And you can also use a rule of thumb, which is half of the time you should be succeeding at least half of the time. And then half the time you should be, uh, you know, struggling or trying to, to make it work. And if that's true, you have just enough winning to feel motivated, to not get dejected and depressed, uh, but just enough wanting to be like, okay, I need to still really stay engaged. Um, the four to five percent is super cool. I mean, I because th I think in our head we probably think it's twenty percent, and so if it's not twenty percent, right. it's not good enough, right? <laughs> this is a lesson about building better habits, though, which is that even when you hear and know that you should start small, it's still really easy to start too big. So if people say things like, I want to build a better habit, like going for uh, a run each day, but I know that I should start small, so I'm only going to run for 10 minutes. Well, even that is actually still way bigger than what you should probably be starting with. Instead, the habit should be something like put on your running shoes and get out the door. Um, because the thing about most habits is that they, or pretty much any habit, a habit has to be established before it can be improved. So we're so focused again on the result, on the target, on the bullseye, and we think about what we want to uh, do in a broad sense that we don't figure out all the little logistics that are associated with like what I call the first two minutes of the behavior. So I like to suggest people adhere to the two minute rule, which is most habits cannot be accomplished in two minutes or less, but everyone can be started in two minutes or less. So if you have a goal of like, I wanna read a book every week, um, well, how can we scale that down to the first two minutes of the behavior? And so that becomes read one page each day. Yeah. And this sounds, uh, sometimes people think this sounds like a trick. Like, okay, I know the real goal is to run a mile or I know the real goal is to read a book. So why would I just, you know, follow through if I know I'm just trying to trick myself. But if you feel like that, my suggestion would be to actually limit yourself at that point. So you have to stop reading after one page or you have to walk back inside after getting your running shoes on and stepping out the door and walking steps or whatever. Um, I had a reader who did this. He ended up losing a hundred pounds and uh, he went to the gym every day for five minutes 
and he had to leave after five minutes. But if you think about it, what he was doing, he did this for like six weeks. And then he was like, I'm coming here all the time. I might as well, you know, like figure out a better program to do or whatever. And this is the exact opposite of what most people do. He mastered the art of showing up. And once he knew, because there are all these details that have to happen early on. Like, when are you going to go to the gym? Which gym are you going to go to? What route will you take to drive there? Um, what time of day will you do this? And will you do it with someone else? Like all these little logistical things that Heath was able to figure out over those first six weeks just by going for five minutes. And then once it was a habit and he mastered the art of showing up, he could focus on optimizing and improving from there. So I think, uh, so that's, that's the first lesson is starting like that. Uh, and by combining that, building a habit in a small way with the Goldilocks rule of let me try to increase by four or 5% each time you can help to overcome what this um, reader was talking about, which is that after a while you start to get bored. You know, if he only went to the gym for five minutes every day and did that for two years, well, yeah, he's going to be pretty bored. Um, But once he had that established, then he starts focusing on, okay, how can I expand the routine? What type of exercises should I do? Can I mix it up? Whatever. Uh, And so I would say that most of the time, once a habit gets established, you need to find ways to continue to move the needle that four or five or percent so that you can stay within some kind of zone of difficulty or zone of motivation rather than getting bored. Do you think six weeks is better than the three-week, the typical three-week rule that we hear about? Yeah. uh, So there's no, you'll hear 21 days, 30 days, 100 days, all that type of stuff. So I I have two thoughts on this. The first is um, there have been research studies done that show that on average, it takes about two or three months to build a new habit. Uh, 66 days is the number you'll hear quoted a lot because that was the average of this particular study. What most people don't say is that the range was quite wide in that study. So for a very simple habit, like drinking a glass of water at lunch each day, people did that in, I think it was 18 days or 21, you know, so it's like very short, it's almost three weeks. Um, but then for other habits, it took people almost eight months. So, so that's the first point is that it's not, there's nothing specific about that. Uh, but the second point, I think this is actually the more crucial thing. When people ask questions like, how long does it take for a new, to build a new habit? The implicit assumption behind that question is, well, how long do I have to work to get to this finish line? And then once I get to this finish line, I'll be done and the habit will be built. But the true answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because when you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. So um, the real way to think about it is not as a finish line to cross, but as a lifestyle to live. And this is another reason why I think small habits are so important. Because if you radically transform your habits, you're asking yourself to radically transform your lifestyle and radically shift your identity. And instead, I think it's much more powerful to upgrade and expand your identity to slightly change your lifestyle the same way that you would uh, retouch a painting. You know, like you're not going to change the whole painting at once, but you can work on this little portion by making a a small improvement. And as you do that over months and years, eventually you end up with a very different picture. Um, But the, the point is that it should be small and consistent rather than some radical shift. And that these are permanent lifestyle changes rather than a 30 day sprint. And then you're done. Yeah. And then you're, and then you're just fixed, right? Right. (laughs) Um, I have a bunch of questions and I think they're all tied in. So Leslie, Trisha, it is this concept of, you know, after all in all out. And so I think I'm I'm just going to paraphrase some of these, um, these three weeks I, I did it and now I'm all out. And then 
seeing that as self-sabotage for them. They're seeing like, maybe I'm self-sabotaging this. Maybe I don't think I'm worthy of this change, but I feel like what you just said, it's just, we're, we're over, uh, not over, I guess that's a horrible thing to say, overestimating ourselves in a way. So maybe we're picking too big of goals or we're just kind of, Mm. um, you know, after three weeks, there's only, just like you said, with the running or anything that's too big, it's going to, at some point die off. So is that the whole concept behind the all in all out uh, personality type that you see? So you do see this a lot. People kind of fall into this all or nothing pattern with their habits. And I think one, it's a, uh, there's a little bit of like a disconnect in how we think about habits and how they actually compound and add up over time. So it's so easy to overestimate the importance of like one defining moment or one radical change and underestimate the importance of making slightly better decisions on a daily basis. And part of that is because the brain has trouble conceptualizing what compound interest or compound results look like. On any given day, it's very easy to dismiss one small choice, what I call in the book, a 1% improvement or a 1% decline. You know, if you eat a burger and fries for lunch today, rather than a salad, it doesn't feel like very much. Uh, The scale probably isn't any different at the end of the day. Um, you probably don't notice that much difference during the, um, during the meal or later that afternoon. It's a very minor shift. And so because it's easy to dismiss, um, it's also easy to repeat day in and day out. And uh, it's only when you're one or two or five or 10 years later that you fully see the effects of how your habits compound over time. And in many ways, our results are just a lagging measure of our habits. You know, like how how clean or dirty your uh, home is, is a lagging measure of what your cleaning habits have been like over the last few weeks. Um, how, uh, how much money is in your bank account is a lagging measure of what your spending habits have been like recently. And how healthy you are or aren't is a lagging measure of what your fitness habits have been and so on. So uh, my point here is that people look at the results. They look at how much money is in the account or what the scale says or um, how clean or dirty the room is. And what they want is to change the results. But what we actually need to change is not the results, but the process behind the results. If you, if you set a goal to, change, to clean your room and you get really motivated, then you'll have a clean room for now. But if you don't change the sloppy pack rat habits behind the, the room, then eventually two weeks or three weeks from now, you're going to be looking at a dirty room again. So you treat it as a symptom without the cause. Um, and I think that this all or nothing mindset is somewhat a product of that. It's a product of saying what I want to change is the result and getting obsessed with that and thinking I need to follow this diet plan to the T. And if I'm not super strict with it, then this just can't be worth it because I'm not going to get the result that I want. Um, you know, like a lot of the time people would say, I, I actually haven't even seen any diets like this where it's like, just do this diet one day a week. Um, but e- if you did that, it would be one day better than what you have right now. Um, and that doesn't feel like it would do anything, but if you can continue to inch that up to the point where, Hey, maybe a year from now you're eating four days a week rather than one day a week uh, in a healthy fashion, that's a really useful, beneficial change, even though it didn't feel like it at the time. So the, uh, the first thing is shifting your mindset and realizing how small changes can add up and compound over time. The second thing that I like to to use is um, just a mantra that I have, which is never miss twice. So, so often what happens with the all or nothing mindset is that you stick to a program, a diet plan or a workout program or whatever, 
for a week or two, then you have one mistake. You either go to happy hour with friends or life is crazy one day and you have to miss a workout or whatever. But it's never the first mistake that ruins you. It's the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. And so if you can cut that off at the source and get back on track as quickly as possible, um, then you can find that you're basically building a new habit streak and you look at the, I also like to look at things on like a much longer time scale, I think, than uh, many people do. So for example, the all or nothing mindset looks at it only on the most instantaneous time scale. Did I do this this week or not? But instead you can like, for example, for my workouts, I've been asking myself, how many weeks per year do I work out? which is like a pretty broad timeline to look at. But I don't feel bad if I have to travel for work or go on vacation for a week and I don't get a lot of training in. Because if I get to the end of the year and I've got my 40 weeks in or whatever it is, uh, then that's still a really good percentage in the long run. And so the all or nothing mindset kind of sabotages that and thinks only about the streak and the perfection of it. Mm. Um, So anyway, my mantra is never miss twice. So if I fall off course then how can I put all of my energy into the next instance? You know, if I eat an unhealthy meal, well, that wasn't ideal, but how can I make sure that I eat a healthy meal the next time? Or if I miss a Thursday for writing an article, I wish I had published then, but how can I make sure I don't miss Monday? Um, And so as long as you never miss twice, what's interesting about that is even if you just followed that strategy, you would do it at least 50% of the time. You know, you would do it once, you'd miss, and then you'd be like, well, I can't miss twice, then you'd do it again, but you just keep repeating that uh, little strategy. But uh, yeah, so all or nothing is something a lot of people deal with. But I think um, shifting the way that you look at it and trying to view things on a broader timescale can help. So many gems. I love it. I, I really am going to use that never miss twice because it's just an easy way to say like new day, just get back and it takes, right. the pressure, it takes the pressure off of perfectionism, which tends to stop many of us in our tracks. So it's good because this is called meathead hippie. I, and we've talked about, you've mentioned lifting in your workout routine. I'm just very curious as a trainer, uh, what, sure. type, what type of lifts do you love to do? So I came into lifting as an athlete. Uh, I played baseball all the way through college and uh, we did mostly strength training and powerlifting kind of stuff then. Um, my dad did a little bit of Olympic lifting, so I got exposed to that early on. Uh, and now, now that I'm done with my uh, playing career, I was looking for another competitive outlet. So originally I joined an Olympic weightlifting team and did a few competitions with them, which was fun. I've done some powerlifting competitions more recently, um, and uh, that's most of my training now is powerlifting style. Um, I could probably use more uh, rowing and cardio and sprint work than I do, uh, but I haven't been doing as much of that recently. I feel like I'm – you know what, though? I have a feeling it's because sometimes the kind of big – projects like writing a book it feels like you just yeah. ran you, you just ran in your oh, head right, yeah. over and over oh, i've been panting at the end of some of these <laughs> chapters they've been i just park on the far side of the parking lot now and that's my cardio yeah um, yeah people yeah. say what are you doing for cardio i'm writing <laughs> yeah exactly right i love wow, that. that sounds strenuous great <laughs> well, please come to Denver. Uh, if you ever come, let me know. My gym will be open by the time all of this is out. And I just, I would love to live with you at some point before. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I would love that too. <laughs> well, very cool. I think the only other question I have for you, James, before we close out. So the, that was the meathead, the hippie. I ask all my guests um, what their spirit animal is or if they know their spirit animal. Mm. I've gotten some very fascinating um, answers. Oh, the spirit animal. 
Are you into personality tests and those types of things? Uh, well, so I mentioned, uh, I have a chapter in the book on personality and habits and how, uh, we can choose the right habits for our personality. And I don't, um, there's, I haven't been able to find a ton of science around it. Uh, but I do think that it's something that's promising. Actually, the powerlifting coach I work with, he now has an entry form where any of his clients fill out a personality test and then they try to match them with the right trainer based on their personality. Uh, oh, so wow. they can work well together. Yeah, it's kind of what? cool. I do think there's know? probably a lot of applications for that across different mm-hmm. industries. Do you know what the personality test is that he uses? They what use the big five. The big five. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And uh, so actually, if you're interested in more of that stuff, uh, if you go to atomichabits.com, which is the, the site for the book, if you go to atomichabits.com slash personality, uh, I have some of the best personality tests listed there uh, for people to try out. And there are a variety of different ones. Um, but. Uh, Anyway, okay, spirit animal. Um, <laughs> so my first answer was going to be uh, a deer, um, but uh, mostly because I, I spent a lot of my childhood on my grandparents' farm, and uh, I would always like try to find deer in the woods, and a couple times uh, like ran across them down there, and that was just like a very cool experience to be face to face with like a ten point buck. And, yeah. Uh, so uh, that was going to be my first answer. But then for some reason, uh, my second answer was a Weimariner, which is like such a strange, specific choice. Um, but I, uh, I don't know if they're, they're smart, they're uh, fast, they're sleek. I, I don't know. They, I think they look nice. I'm, I'm into it. I think it's great. Oh my God, that's so accurate. Cause I just, I'm really good at, so I, I love dogs. I was like on my way to vet school, worked with dogs my whole life. I even washed dogs for a very long time. So I'm like very good with breeds of dogs. And I just think that you just hit the nail on the head with my <laughs> There's no way that these are the correct answers, but those are the ones that came to me. Well, that's, that's the, that means if it's just your gut instinct, that means it's right. So you're yeah, you mix of the two. That's so good. I love it. Well, James, again, it's such an honor to finally have you on me at Hip, Meathead Hippie, but just for me personally to talk to you, I think you're fantastic. Everyone go get this book, atomichabits.com. Um, and I know that you'll have a ton of resources there so they can dig around and start to get to know you and all the work that you've been doing for the last six-ish years. And it's just, it's just so great to connect. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity.